Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, it is the month of October, and as such, it is probably my busiest month of the year, at least for the semester, to be sure. I have a couple interesting opportunities coming up. This next week, I'm going to be teaching a all-week class for the Laramie, Texas, and Cary Institute programs. Their, their institute program is a year-long intensive MTS degree, 42 credits, dedicate a year, go through. But what that means is they have to take week-long class blocks So next week I'm chipping in teaching the Old Testament studies portion of that class. And so that's going to be very busy teaching all day and uh, really looking forward to joining them though. If you're interested in what that program kind of looks like, I did do an interview with Clayton Schultz, who is the director of the Laramie campus uh, side of Shepherd's Theological Seminary. And so you could go listen to that. I remember my wife listened to that and she said, Hey, I want to go there, but unfortunately, uh, she can't at the moment because we are rather occupied elsewhere, but it's just a great program. They have now kind of duplicated that in Texas as well as here in Cary, North Carolina, and had a lot of success with that. So really thankful for what God's doing with that program. So happy to be a part of that. In addition, we have our conference coming up uh, in two weeks, uh, the I think it's the 19th through the 21st, I believe, are the dates for that in October, the Shepherds 360 conference, and there's going to be a lot of great fellowship that takes place with that, and just, it's going to be an encouraging time, a lot of great speakers. We have Erwin Lutzer, Al Moeller, and a couple others, obviously, coming and speaking, so that's going to be a really good time, really looking forward to that. So, that's what's going to keep me busy this month, to be sure, but I want to definitely chip in and keep uh, podcasting and, and blogging as much as possible. And one of the things that is prevalent in our discussion because of the election that's coming up in November is this idea of capitalism versus socialism. And so I want to talk about that today. And really, we could entitle this Socialism in the Bible or a Biblical Evaluation of Socialism. We, we look around the world, there are a lot of what would be called socialistic countries, and there would also in the past be very many socialist countries. And so we can evaluate all of this from a pragmatic standpoint, as well as a biblical standpoint. We're going to try to focus primarily on the biblical worldview, because that's obviously the most important thing to a Christian is what does the Bible evaluate? How can we think about things theologically? And so that's going to be our primary purpose today. But one of the interesting things to consider as we start thinking about socialism as a whole is that it has gained a lot of popularity in the United States over the last couple of years. And I guess when I was growing up, I just always remember hearing socialism and equating that with failed forms of government. Uh, you had all sorts of socialist paradise notions which had been debunked and socialism had ended up leading to many wars and civil wars, all these, all these problems. But it's interesting because even in the United States, I guess it is true that uh, soft times beget soft people in the sense that 
it, those surveyed between the age range of 18 and 24, over half, in fact, well over half, 61% of those individuals, 18 to 24-year-olds, thought positively of socialism, which is really incredible if you think about it. Coming from America, the most capitalistic country in the history of the world, you have people growing up in the United States who think positively of socialism. And there was another poll, in addition to that previous one, where 43% of Americans thought some form of socialism would be good for the United States in particular. So now we're moving beyond the realm of just, okay, we have some positivity about socialism generically to, hey, we should implement this to the United States. 43% of Americans think that some form of socialism would be good for the United States. That's really, really incredible. And obviously this, it's no surprise that this is, you know, where the population is going. Uh, when you go ahead and look at the politics, you see politicians like Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You see these individuals who are just embracing socialism full-throatedly, if you want to say it that way. And unfortunately, I think a lot of young people embrace it because they don't really think about it or they don't really know the history behind it. They don't really know what it is. And so we need to talk about it. We need to think through these things. So just at its core level, what what is socialism? When we think about it, we could define it in a couple different ways, but let's just take the Merriam-Webster's definition of socialism and they define it as any of the various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods. So the key there is the collective or governmental ownership and then the administration of goods and services through the government. So the government is the controlling agent then of the ownership. They're the ones who own things and distribute them uh, to each according to their need, as it were. So there are different variations of socialism to be sure, but the defining characteristic of socialism is that the government needs to be in control over the production and distribution. That's the most common denominator in, in these variations. So if the heart of socialism is this control of the ownership and means of production through the government, uh, how, how have we seen this play out in history? Well, obviously there's been some incredible recent examples of socialism. The most recent and catastrophic in recent memory would be uh, Venezuela, for example. In fact, there have been many people who used to herald Venezuela as a example. In fact, I was going back over some of the uh, socialistic uh, postings of the last couple of years. And in 2011, Bernie Sanders had republished an article on his Senate website that argued that Ecuador, Venezuela, and Argentina were more indicative of the American dream than America was. And of course, uh, didn't work out so well, uh, comparing those countries to America uh, and just how that fleshed out, obviously. And so when we think about Venezuela now, it's if anybody who hears Venezuela uh, associates Venezuela with these just tremendous uprisings, just tremendous hunger, starvation, things that are just super problematic. And and of course, the issue is that Venezuela went from being one of the major, major, just rich, very wealthy South American countries. In fact, I think it was the richest South American country per capita, if I remember correctly. And now it's obviously just in the pit of despair. 
uh, all thanks to socialism. And so when we think of these examples, there's obviously a lot of things that uh, pragmatically we see are wrong. In fact, this this is one of the reasons why Thomas Sowell, who's obviously the famed Stanford economist, and he had as a famous statement where he says, socialism in general has a record of failure so blatant that only an intellectual could ignore or evade it. And unfortunately, that is usually the case. I mean, the common man knows it doesn't work uh, just on a pragmatic level, but a lot of times people on an intellectual level say, oh, it has to work. Well, figure out a way to make it, make it work, and it doesn't. So socialism is attractive, and one of the reasons I think it's attractive and this is goes into our biblical analysis we're about to start, is that it appeals to the sin nature and anti-God mindset that is inherent in each individual. Remember, as Christians, we would hold to the fact that man is not neutral, but we are by nature not just not just uh, existing, but rebels. We are by nature anti-God. That is how, you know, we don't come out and just neutrally decide to whether to follow God or not. No, we are opposing God. Romans 1 is very clear on that count. We are suppressing the unrighteous. We are suppressing the truth about God in our unrighteousness. Romans 1 uh, makes that clear. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 talks about how the natural man cannot accept the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. So there's a anti-God mentality in each of us by nature. Uh, so when we think about what socialism does, social, socialism appeals to that jealousy. It appeals to this fact where there is, there is this, uh, desire for our own benefit and for the tearing down of others at times. So socialism will often promise to fulfill your desires while promising never to let someone else get ahead of you. And that just sounds like a dream. If you are a sinner, your jealousy is fulfilled as well as your, your self-centeredness. So when we think about these things, there are some obvious problems. So I think there, I mean, there are more than this, but I would just go ahead and say that there are at least four major biblical issues with socialism as we go through it. And I don't think as Christians, we could ever support any kind of socialistic system for the following reasons. So the first one, would be that socialism advocates communal property, but the Bible advocates private property. So that would be my first point is that socialism uh, talks about shared property, communal property, and the Bible advocates for the private property. Now we go, we go through this in a variety of ways. It's not surprising that we would start at creation. When we think about creation, built into creation itself is the mandate that humans work. So Genesis 2.15 is very clear on that. Even before sin, God takes man, puts him in the Garden of Eden, and the purpose of that is to work it and to keep it. So even from the outset, work is pre-fall. This is a institution, a good gift from the Creator. And although it's it's true, Genesis 3.17-19 through 19 talk about how work is going to be more difficult post-fall, there's still an effort that is going to come about by personal volition in order to eat one's own bread. So, for example, Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So, in other words, it's your work which is going to produce your own living, your own food, as it were. And so, that's 
the basic foundational reality of life. That's, that's what we would understand. Work inherently produces a positive benefit, either by compensation or else in the accomplishment of the task itself. And this biblical notion of work, uh, carries with it this idea of private property. In other words, your, your work ought to be justly compensated. That would be the natural way of understanding it. Now, this is verified by the way that the law itself explains these things. So, for example, in Exodus 22, we see the following law talking about thieves and stealing. So it says in Exodus 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and and kills it or sells it, then he must repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in, and is struck, so he dies. There's no blood guilt upon him. But if the sun is risen, then there shall be blood guilt on him. This is an interesting law with regard to self-defense per se. But the implication is that uh, if a thief breaks into to your property and he is found, he doesn't have the right to be there. And in fact, in some cases, as the law is pointing out, you are authorized to take his life because you don't know why he's there. You're, you, you can't recognize him and whatnot. Uh, it, going on in verse 4, it says, if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So in other words, we have built into the law, and this is just a small example of this, but we have built into this law an idea that there is personal property, and if you violate someone else's personal property by stealing or taking what is not lawfully yours, then not only are you obligated to return what you took, but in many cases, to uh, tack onto that also a form of restitution. So, for example, in verse 1, it talks about repaying five oxen for an ox. Verse 4, it talks about uh, paying double. And so when we think about this, there is this obvious implication that, that personal property is off limits to other people. And this is kind of backed up in the New Testament as well. If you even think about what our obligation is of believers, uh, we have... Matthew 6, Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about what what to do when you give to the needy. And the obvious implication there is that it's a personal uh, a personal gift out of your own riches, out of your own wealth. And so you give to the needy. You are the one who does that. You don't sound the trumpet or anything like that, but you're the one who does that. And the government doesn't. Uh, and this is a big point. Uh, just taking a step back for a moment, uh, one of the big discussions that's often brought up in politics, and I think it's worth noting here, is just that often we're saying, well, Christians don't care about the needy. That's that's why we vote uh, Democrat or we vote socialist because we care about the poor and this is the way that we care about the poor. I mean, this this is uh, this is a plan to, to care. We have, you know, free health care and all these things that people need, and that's loving your neighbor. Okay, well, there's a lot there that we could go into, but I just would like to say from a basic presupposition, what the Bible talks about is the personal care of the poor, not government-mandated care of the poor. And this, we will have one day, I'm sure, a series on what the role of government is, because that's also an important topic to discuss but at least from the biblical perspective, what you see is the personal 
care of the poor. Like if you see someone in need, you meet that need. You don't say, hey, let's go ahead and tax everybody else so that we can meet this need. Let's take money from everybody else in order that in order that this need will be met instead of you yourself meeting that need or the church meeting the needs of these individuals. So all this relates to the basic reality of private property. Scripture speaks very highly of this concept of you owning material and then that being off limits to others. They are not allowed to take that. And this is something that you, in in fact, I would even add that built into the law itself, God ultimately claims that he is, he is the ultimate owner of the land of Israel, but he has given it to specific tribes and within those tribes, specific families and clans and built into the law itself is the stipulation to make sure that the land does not go out of the uh, of the tribe or the family to whom it was originally given by God. And so there is this understanding of, of private property with regard to that as well. There is this understanding that, hey, this is yours and you have the right or authority to do with it what you want. In fact, you have concepts like uh, the year of Jubilee in the 50th year. If you had to sell your land to pay off a debt, well, it can be uh, reverted back to your family at that point. So there is a important concept of private property uh, or ownership, if you will, in scripture. And so that's very, very important and a foundational starting point. So when we think about how that plays out, then this leads to the second biblical critique, and that would be that socialism advocates forced redistribution. So socialism advocates forced redistribution, but the Bible prohibits theft. So we've already talked a little bit about the Bible prohibiting theft, but think about how socialism has to work. So the mechanism by which socialism works is that you have to have authority. The government has to use, they have to use power and authority and violence if necessary to, to actually redistribute possessions and property. Because in order for it to work, in order for socialism as a theory to be played out in real life, you have to force people to do it. Because socialism just doesn't work if you say like, okay, yeah, 20, 20% of us will, will try to participate in socialism. Well, guess what? That's not going to work. And in fact, I would go a step further and say the, the main people who, the main people who socialism needs to participate, the rich people, aren't the ones who are going to want to participate in socialism because they don't want to see their money, uh, redistributed to all these, uh, other people who in their minds aren't worthy. So socialism advocates this forced redistribution and it's dependent on the government being able to force individuals to give up their property, their money, their assets, and to do with it whatever the state wants. And so this is, this is problematic from a biblical worldview, especially since we talked about how the Bible pro- prohibits theft and we could go into the role of government again here where the government is never tasked or, or even hinted at the, their purpose being revolving around the idea of wanting to take care of the poor or anything like that. So this, this idea of Robin Hood, where you steal from the rich to give to the poor sounds good in a movie, perhaps, but it is not biblical. This is from a foundational reality. Our precept is you shall not steal. And that doesn't matter whether somebody's rich or poor. The authority is still the same. The the precept, the theological principle is still the same. In fact, 
I engaged with a discussion one time, a young gentleman who had just uh, graduated high school. So he knew everything already. So I didn't have much to contribute, but he, he was talking about how there should be no such thing as billionaires. And of course that's red flag. That's like socialist jargon right away off the bat. Right. So he's like, there should be no such thing as billionaires. We should take that money and give it to somebody else. And so I was saying, well, what basis are like, why are you picking billionaire? Like, I, I don't understand. Why are you saying it's okay to, to pick on somebody who's a billionaire, but not okay to pick on somebody that's a millionaire or who has just a thousand dollars? What, what's the point from a, from an objective standpoint? And this is, you know, uh, having spent quite a bit of time recently discussing and, and studying the postmodern foundation of our culture. I realize the idea of objective truth is in jeopardy. But if as Christians, we, we think about objective truth, that there is a standard, and this is the biblical law, right? Equal weights and measures. They're applied equally to the poor man, to the rich man. We, we are not to prefer the, prefer the rich or the poor, the oppressed or the, the oppressor. We don't prefer any category. Justice is equal to all of them. And so from a biblical standpoint, we could not say there's no, there should be no such thing as billionaires. We couldn't say anything like that because, because if these things are being applied equally, then we would say it's wrong to steal from this individual just as wrong as it would be to steal from this individual. Their, their circumstances don't, don't justify thievery. And so when we think about that, uh, we just need to be objective and say that there is an equal weights and measures that the Bible gives to this principle. So socialism at its very nature is unbiblical because it has that forced redistribution aspect to it. It's not voluntary at all. <laughs> as in fact, as one person, I don't know who said this originally, but, uh, you can, you only get one, uh, one chance to vote for socialism and then it's over. Like you can't, you can't reverse that vote. Once you vote into socialism, you can't get out because you've already given the authority to the government to do its government thing. So when you disagree with the government, you have no authority. You have, you have no recourse then. There's no way out of that. So again, a third critique of socialism. Socialism promotes laziness and the Bible promotes discipline and hard work. So socialism promotes laziness and the Bible promotes discipline and hard work. So this is obviously one of the many fatal flaws of socialism is the complete disregard for individual, the individual and his, his or her production, right? So this is why it's often observed that if you, if you put individuals side by side, if you have an individual who's going to receive the exact same compensation, regardless of their work output or their productivity, most individuals are going to work less. Because there's no benefit in them to to work more. And I've seen this even among Christians. So Christians are not exempt from the workings of the flesh. We are often tempted to fall in line with this. And so if, if for example, well, you know, there are a lot of examples we could give for this, but, but let's just take something very basic. Let's just take, you know, some sort of uh, remedial, uh, tunnel digging task, right? So if you're being paid not by your actual output, but by just the fact that you exist, well, what's your motivation to work hard to, you know, be, be getting that tunnel done? I mean, there's, there's no motivation. You're getting paid no matter what. So at this, at, at that rate, I mean, you could just sit by and, 
especially if you can't be fired, which, you know, is the case for many governmental jobs, which is what they would end up all being governmental jobs. Well, most of the jobs, obviously. So in that regard, you would just hang out, you know, you could uh, take as many breaks as you want, you know, there's, you're, you're getting paid just as much as anybody who's literally breaking their back working, uh, digging out the tunnel. So obviously there is, uh, no incentive and that's the, the key word there. And so, you know, you just put it in, in that personal setting is, is why would you do 100% of the work, uh, if you have to share 50% of the earnings with others. Uh, you know, there have lot, there have been a lot of things that I've done in life where I've been proud of the accomplishment, but I would, I would question whether or not I would actually follow through with it if I knew that I was going to have to share, uh, the credit or share the, uh, compensation with other people who didn't even work or who didn't contribute as much. So this is human nature. And that's what we need to understand is, is it's the sinful human nature. Uh, of course, in the church, we promote and prize the attitude of humility where we work 100%. In fact, somebody said, and I love this definition of Christian humility, where imagine how the church would function if the church, if everyone in the church was willing to put in 100% of the effort and get 0% of the credit and that, and, and just give it all to Christ and say, you know, it doesn't matter. All of the glory goes to Christ. Well, that's, redeemed humanity. And I would say redeemed humanity has plenty difficult time with this concept of uh, selfishness and uh, things like that as well. But on natural man, this is impossible. This is, you can't ask unredeemed man to avoid laziness. You can't. This is something that is ingrained in unredeemed man as part of his flesh and part of his sin nature. In fact, within biblical precept as well, we could go a step further Thinking about 2 Thessalonians 3, this is probably one of the anti-socialist verses in verses 6 and following. You could go all the way through 12. Basically, Paul talks about how they, the Thessalonian believers in verse 6 uh, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received. So he uses himself as an example and his, uh, his fellow travelers, how they weren't idle, but they, they worked hard so that they didn't, they did, they didn't eat anything that they didn't deserve basically. And in verse 10, he says, even when we were with you, we, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now that is, uh, extremely foundational principle to human existence is if you don't work, you don't eat. And so that is, that's, that's not socialism. Socialism is this assumption that everyone is equal in a certain regard. And so we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're at its very uh, theoretical core, you would have somebody like a janitor and somebody like a uh, doctor uh, being paid the same uh, because, you know, everyone's going to have the same living standard. Everyone's going to do these things. So it's not about the quality of work. It's not about the kind of work. Those things don't matter. It's we need all equality. We need equality of outcome. We need equity is often the, the term that's brought into this. So socialism is is very dangerous with regard to that because it removes this idea of agency and deservingness. 
So no longer is somebody compensated in accordance with what they deserve and in accordance with what they're doing, but rather just on some artificial standard. So socialism does promote laziness and the Bible promotes discipline and hard work. So that's the third critique. Fourth and finally, socialism assumes the goodness of mankind, but the Bible assumes the sinfulness of mankind. And this is so foundational. This is so found. I mean, anthropology, anthropology comes in so many different times and so many different ways in understanding the culture around us. Socialism and really any anti-God philosophy assumes that man is good, that, that maybe if man does something that's wrong, perhaps it's a, it's a physical corruption. Maybe something was wrong with them and we need to get them on some pills. Maybe it was a societal influence. The common craze now is critical theory where the oppression is, is causing people to do things. So, you know, they're not at fault for their personal actions. It's, it's society, which is systemically either racist against certain people or oppressive, uh, on certain people groups. So there are all these things that are contributing to our societal downfalls. It cannot be that mankind is inherently sinful as the Bible would teach. That's an impossibility to an anti-God worldview. So right away from the outset, this is such a, uh, a contrast between the worldviews of socialism and biblical worldview. And so this is how I would define probably the foundational error of socialism and all others build upon this. Uh, socialism assumes even though, you know, self-centered incentives for hard work are removed, individual will keep working hard in order to provide for their fellow man out of decency. So uh, socialism assumes that people are naturally going to be utilitarian, that they'll care more about their fellow man and that they'll work hard despite a individual incentive. Remember the last point, which we were talking about, I was pointing out how socialism actually promotes laziness. And this is why, because socialism assumes the goodness of mankind, assumes that we're going to be utilitarian when such is not the case. That's really not the case at all. Mankind is selfish inherently and does whatever they do out of their own uh, self-benefit, as it were. And so when we look at scripture, we see passages all over the place. Ephesians 2.1 talks about uh, human beings being dead in their sins. We already mentioned Romans 1, 20 and 21, talking about uh, mankind suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. But we've also talked about, if we went even later on in Romans, we see in Romans 8.5, it says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. In other words, those who live according to the world, uh, unbelievers, their, their minds are constantly imbibed with the things of the flesh. This is their own sinful desires, and that's the course of action which they follow. So this is why socialism can never work. Because if you think about Genesis 3, the fall is, has tainted every human being, and now each individual is, is tainted with this self-centeredness, uh, this selfishness which which really is all about self-aggrandizement. It's uh, doing things for your own benefit. Uh, it's it's even like we talked about with jealousy, uh, wanting less for other people in order to promote your own well-being or to feel better about yourself. And this can only be remedied through a new life in Christ, through regeneration. This is This is the importance of the gospel. And so again, for Christians 
who would who would try to advocate or support so-called socialism and say like oh this is this is good because it's caring for our mankind it's not i mean it sounds good at the outset because in theory what you're saying is we will take care of everybody but in practice it just ignores the very foundational reality of how human beings actually exist so it, it's impossible for it to work. Theologically, there are too many problems. It just does not, it doesn't uh, take into consideration the real world. This, this is just a, this is a, a fake world scenario. It's kind of like, I don't know, I just thought of this illustration and it may be terrible, but roll with me here is it's kind of, I remember a computer game, uh, growing up. I'm sure there's still variations of this game, but the Sims, I don't know if you remember that. It was like a, I remember some of the, early iterations of this you have like uh a a world which you create you can build your house you can have your characters and basically what you do is you live life with them they call it the sims i guess it's for like the simulation or something like that you simulate life on your computer like you do everything you get to go to a job and work and then you come back you make money you buy things etc it's a totally simulated world and so you can design things that you know wouldn't really work in real life per se uh, or would just be terrible. You, you can do, you know, you can construct your little computer world and live in it or whatever. Uh, the game was uh, apparently very addicting to many people reading reports on these things. I played it a couple times and I was just like, well, whatever. I'd rather live life, I guess. But you just think about taking that, uh, taking a computer game and saying like, okay, this works here in our theoretical, just make believe world. We can now incorporate that into the real world. Well, that's what, that's what's going on with socialism is theoretically you say like, oh, this is how everything's going to work. It's going to be great, but it just ignores the basic reality of how real world function, uh, is everyday Egypt from the basic reality of the fact that evil exists and mankind is not inherently good, but they are inherently depraved. And we think about these things. It impacts actually the everyday decisions that you would make. So there, there obviously could be a lot more that's said about socialism and the Bible. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot, a lot of good articles and presentations on that, but I just think it's helpful for us, especially when we, we think about this is a, this is a very pertinent discussion going into the elections. Obviously you have a, a heavily socialistic, uh, government. In fact, um, the, uh, first socialist we ever had, uh, as president, uh, Barack Obama, he, he instituted many policies that we would consider as socialist. Uh, he would, he wouldn't have claimed to be socialist, but at least from that definition, um, of government control of pr- means of production and things like that, he was, he was obviously, uh, socialist. And so when we think about how we as Christians should be actually caring for our mankind, our fellow man, there's there's important qualifications that need to be made here. And so I don't think we should shy away from thinking through these things. I think biblically the answers are right in front of us, as we would say. And there's no argument that can be made from a biblical worldview of advocating for socialism. So anyway, I hope I don't get a lot of emails from uh, you raving socialists out there. But if you want to, I'm happy to hear them. You can always reach out to me through my contact page at petergaming.com. You can also find some of the most recent blog articles I've written there. If you're interested in the seminary where I teach, you can visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Mm-hmm.